0: Good morning, I'm Rich. Welcome welcome to everyone here. If you're new to joining us, I'm a partner here. Uh, John, our pastor's uh, taking the week off, so he's asked me to fill in. So we've come to that magical time of service, not only to open God's Word, but we also release our 4th through 6th graders to go downstairs and, and learn a little Bible lesson. You can, you can see them in the back. Anybody, anybody? Maybe some older kids? Hey, if you would, take your Bibles or your... Electronic device and scroll or turn to John chapter twenty. We read the text, but I like for you to just keep your finger there because we're going to roll through it, and we don't have all the verses up that we're going to talk about in John chapter twenty. Because we're going to look at uh, what Hannah read, verses twenty-four through twenty-nine. But we're also going we're we'll back up a little bit and look at the story before that. So I am I know that this outside is a little bit of a distraction. It is a beautiful beautiful spring day. Uh, it's that perfect temperature. Uh, that the beauty of spring and, and when we think of Easter time, right? Last, last week, if you were here, we, we celebrated. It was just as sunny, but it was about 25 degrees cooler. We celebrated some fantastic baptisms out on the, on the porch out there. Uh, that was a, a great time. If you missed that, just join us next time. We're going to probably do some baptisms in the summer out at the beach. It's a great time for us as a community to, in a public way, show the death, the burial, and resurrection of Christ. This morning, what I want you to see from our text this morning, with walking with Thomas through this little story and this interaction with Thomas and Jesus, I want you to see that what peace will be with you always. Jesus promises that that peace that surpasses all understanding will be with you as you gaze upon the glory of God. And I find it interesting the idea of peace. If you are uh, paying attention to anything going on in our culture and our cultural wars or political things going on. What we see is people who are gravitating and, and just clawing at this idea of peace. They're trying to find peace within themselves. And I think, honestly, they're trying to find peace absent from God. They're trying to find their comfortness in their own skin. And sometimes it sounds like I'm trying to find my own truth. For the truth, Christ says, will set you free. The truth in Him will set you free and bring that peace. Everything we're trying to use in this world to try to bring us that peace, it's just fleeting. It's hollow. It may, it may entertain you for a little while, but on the long haul, it's not going to be that peaceful. I was thinking about this idea of peace, and, and what we see here in, this, in the Scripture, we'll walk through it in a few minutes, is this idea that Jesus is talking about peace be with you, and he says it's, it's this idea of shalom. So Jesus, being Jewish, speaking to a Jewish audience, we look at the Old Testament, the idea of shalom, and it's, it's different the way I think that Westerners understand peace. We pray for peace. We have peace movements. But really that's talking about the absence of war, the absence of conflict. If there's absence of conflict, the opposite of that would be peace. But that's not what the Jewish shalom is about. The peace that God talks about is the holistic peace. It's, it's the peace that permeates everything of who you are, body, mind, and Spirit. It's that place of tranquility in your life. Here's an example. Last night, I was uh, I let my little dog out in the backyard, and we walked out there, and it was about sunset time, and I just noticed when I stepped out there, it was very comfortable. It was about 70-something degrees, low 70s. And we have a pond out back, and I looked out uh, on that pond, and the water was like glass because there was no wind. The sun was setting. There were no bugs. It was very comfortable to be there, and I noticed my dog instead of doing what she normally does and takes care of her business and come back in, she just sat down and just looked around. And I thought, hmm, that's a place of peace. So I just kind of stood there with her. As I stood there with her, I watched the water as it was not moving. I started to hear the birds chirp. I started to hear the the, the leaves rustle from a slight breeze, but I couldn't feel it. And then I also noticed that at that moment, God allowed a a bald eagle who lives in our area, there's a couple of them, fly right over, and I thought, wow, the, majestic, the majesty of a bald eagle. It was a moment of tranquility for me. I was at peace. Things were good. It was quiet. It was just a few moments, but it was a place of peace for me. I think we all long for that. We have a heart and a, and a focus as humans to look for that peace and that rest, and although we enjoy work, Maybe not everybody enjoys it, but we get things out of work. We also enjoy the rest that comes from that. So let's start up that next slide. Let's talk about what this idea of shalom is and this peace. It's not just peace the absence of, of conflict, but he's talking about this peace in all areas of our life, where we are relationally and physically, emotionally, spiritually, and volitionally. We'll talk about that, what those mean. So what we're talking about, we're talking about physical peace, well, this is, this is health. These are the things we pray about for, for our grandmothers, and our aunts, and our kids. This is that we have adequate f- food and shelter, places to sleep, and then the physical the physical he- healing, the place of peace. It, it, we all know we've all experienced some kind of pain. When you're in that pain, it's not, it's not very tranquil in that moment. All you can focus on is the pain that's going on with you. But Jesus is talking about not only physically, but he's talking about this, uh, the relational peace. We have a heart that we want to belong in a relationship. We want to be seen. We want to be loved. We want to be validated. We want to be affirmed. We feel that closeness, the connection with our family, loved ones, and our friends. We also have this emotional peace. I was thinking through, what does emotional peace look like? To me, it's kind of like what I I experienced last night. It's serenity. It's calmness. It's when the water out there is like glass. It's still. There's no... There's no turbulence going on in my life. Then there's the spiritual piece, the, the idea of uh, you know where you're at, you know where you want to go. You hear God say, I need you to do this, and here, here's where I want you to be. It's being in your wheelhouse. It's being in that sweet spot of life where you're walking with God. I think everybody who knows God or, or even thought about God, we want to, we want to figure out those, those questions in life of who am I, what's, what's the meaning of life, and who is God to me? And as you walk through those, it's a lifetime journey. You build that spiritual peace within you. And the last one I have up there is volitional. So this is your your choices. This is your act of your will. And when you find peace there, when you know that you're focused, you know that that you have the innate God-given ability to make choices in your life, he gives us that free will. And that's a blessing, especially for Americans. We love that rugged individualness. But the struggle is when we take that volition, that choice in life, and we redirect it for our own purposes or our own will. We make ourselves God, and we don't let God be God. That erodes our peace. So what some other things that help that erode your peace? What some struggles you have with peace? I think there's three, three things. The first of all that kind of hits on all those five things that were up there, this lack of faith. This lack of faith or trust that, that God is bigger than us and He's in control because in the moment when we're not at peace, we get very focused on what it is or whatever that is. It's not bringing us that peace and bringing us that turbulence in life. It's self-centered instead of being God-centered. And the question for that is, who are, you, who are you seeking to please? Are you seeking to please your one true holy God who says, well done, my faithful servant, or are you really just kind of, I just want to medicate this away so that I can go on and... and, and Focus on me and myself. So there's a, that trust issue stuff. Or maybe there's another issue, a control issue. Some, some of us like to, to grasp and hold tightly to things in our lives, and we try to control the things that are uncontrollable. We find ourselves in, in situations where you have no control, zero control what's going on in your situation or around you, but yet you're going to get real busy in trying to, trying to control that situation. But the flip side of that is when you're refusing to take the ownership of the things you do have control over. That also causes a little bit of turbulence. So it's the two sides of coin of choice. You try to control the things you can't control or you're not controlling the things you can. You're taking, not taking that responsibility of who should be in control in that moment. And that leads into the third one, which who has control of your own heart and the focus of where that is. And that sinfulness in your, in your camp. The Old Testament talks about God warns them, hey, Israelites, says, they're moving around. He's like, there's sin in the camp and I've got to bring judgment. Because there's a lack of peace in there. And, I'm, and God says, I'm going to restore that peace because that peace is in me, not in your selfishness. So lack of trust, control issues, and unrepentant sin in our hearts. What I want you to see today, our main idea, in this story with Thomas, as he connects with Christ... And Christ says to him, Peace be with you. I want you to see that ultimately, peace comes only through walking in community with the one true God. Ultimately, peace only comes through walking in community with the one true God. And what I mean by ultimately is finally, in the end, when you get through and you push through whatever it is that you're struggling with, it's not bringing you peace. When you look back, you go, oh, wait a minute, God was teaching me something. Because he tells us he's not going to let us be tempted above, which, above that which we can endure, but he's going to give us a way out. So there's this idea of refining through our experiences in life, and he wants us to go through those. He doesn't like it. We don't like it, but he's, he's equipping us, and he's training us, and he's forming us, he's refining us into the characters and the people that he wants us and desires for us to be, to be our best to bring him glory. So ultimately, in the end, because right now we're caught, we're stuck in the in that moment of God created the garden, put Adam and Eve in it's perfect, it's beautiful, and then there is fall of sin, and then Christ comes onto the scene, He's resurrected, but we're waiting for the finality, the end of the story. So we're in that middle part. In other words, the peace you're seeking for, you have to deal with you and just the struggle of your own heart. But you're not alone. Because Christ is right there with you because that's where Thomas was. And I want, to see, I want you to see that in the story. Ultimately, peace comes through walking community with the one true God. What I want you to see in this story are two things. Not only that main point, but I'm backed up by the first point. Jesus knows our heart and he always responds gracefully. Jesus knows your heart and he always responds gracefully. And the second thing we're going to look at is faithful doubting leads us to that peace. Faithful doubting leads us to that peace. Let's go to John chapter 20. Then we read, starting in verse 24, but I want to back up to verse 18. Last week at Easter, we talked about the, the ladies going to the tomb, finding the tomb empty, and this connection that Jesus makes later on with Mary Magdalene. He appears to her, and they have this conversation and Mary Magdalene goes back and she tells the disciples in verse 18, she says, I have seen the Lord. And in verse 19, it says, on that evening. So this is Easter morning, I have seen the Lord. That night, later on, the apostles are in this room. It, talk, it says that the text says that they were behind locked doors. They were scared. What were they scared of? Well, put yourself in their shoes. Put yourself in that, that mind of what they experienced that day. In the past couple of days, actually. They had followed their rabbi. They had left their jobs. They had changed their life to follow their rabbi because they believed he was the Son of God, he was the Messiah, he was the Christ. He was going to usher in this new kingdom of God in heaven. But then they witnessed their rabbi brutally murdered, executed in the most horrible way by Roman soldiers. So that which they thought that this king was going to come in and drive all of their unpeacefulness, their, their, their chaos out for them has now fallen to that same chaos and he hung on a cross. That's where they're at. That's where their minds are. So if I were me, I'd be, I'd be running for the hills. But they're behind a locked door and then Jesus, the text says, appears to them. We don't know how he appeared to them. Did he walk through the door? Did he just show up? We don't know. But he makes it very clear he appears to them and he says, in verse 19 at the end, he says, peace be with you. And he shows them his wounds. And he says, here I am. So he's not just a ghost. He is Jesus Christ, bodily resurrected, standing in the, in the room with them. Peace be with you. And they said they were glad. So by his peace, they changed their mood. And in verse 21, he says it again, peace be with you. He says it twice to him. So pretty significant. Peace be with you. Shalom. All those areas of your life, you're in turmoil right now, you're you're struggling, and he says, peace be with you, for I am here. Then there's another section we we won't go into, but then, verse 24 says, now Thomas, one of the twelve, So he's identifying exactly who this Thomas is, and not just some random Thomas. Thomas the Apostle, he was not with them. So after this meeting, they find Thomas, or they come together, and they say, Thomas, we have seen the Lord. They use the same words that Mary Magdalene uh, said. We have seen the Lord. In verse 25, Thomas responds to them. and He says, unless... I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of those, Into the side, I will never believe. Now think about this. This Thomas guy, he's one of the apostles. He's been, he's been ministering with Jesus. He's seen this happen, and he says, unless I can touch him and put my hand in there, I'm not going to believe. Because Thomas also experienced that, cru- that crucifixion, and that chasing off and the fear of the Jews because they're behind locked doors. He experienced all of that fear and that trembling and that unpeacefulness. And he's just saying, I got to see him myself. I got to be there. And the, the wording there is he, the wording says he just wanted to touch him. But on, the language underneath that, he's emphatic. He says, I need to shove my hand in there. I need to feel it. I need to make it part of who I am before I can believe. It's not that he didn't trust them, but he himself needed that connection to Jesus. It's interesting because Thomas has gotten, a, I think, a bad rap. We call him Doubting Thomas. But I think Thomas is asking a really good question. He's making a really good statement. So let's take a look at who is this Thomas. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Gospels, all they mention is his name. John shows us a little bit of who Thomas is. If you go back to the story of Lazarus, in John chapter 11, there's this guy named Lazarus and his sister's Mary and Martha, which is another story about them being busybodies. They come to Jesus and they say, hey, our, Lazarus, Lazarus, our, our, our brother is sick, can you come and heal him? And Jesus says, not right now. I'll give a little bit of time on this. The backstory story is Jesus was just in the area. He was in Jerusalem and where Lazarus, where Lazarus is is very close in a small town called Bethany. And Jesus was in there preaching, and as he was doing at the time, he obviously he started up a little bit of strife because he was telling the, uh, the Pharisees and the, and the Sadducees and the scribes, he was basically preaching in open courts and telling them they're wrong and hypocrites, which is not going to make you a popular figure. Uh, and so they tried to stone him and run him out of town, he and his disciples. And the text says that they escaped, and they went across the Jordan River where John was baptizing or had baptized. So it's some distance away. It's like, it's like from here to Williamsburg or Richmond so it's quite a ways away where they're safe and in that conversation about Lazarus and going back and talking to him and going back and seeing Lazarus Jesus tells his his apostles "Hey, we need to go back i've got to go wake up nazareth or wake up lazarus and they say well wait a minute. if he's if he's asleep then he's going to wake up he's going to be fine jesus we don't need to go and he says no i need to go to glorify the glorify the father and then thomas comes in on the scene the only person who's named in this conversation. And Thomas says, let us also go that we may die with him. And him meaning Jesus. So Thomas is saying, Lord, if this is what, if this is what we have to do, I'm with you. I'm in there. It's our modern day version of, of the Flight 93, let's roll. Thomas is on board. He's like, let's go. Let's do it. He's, he's a realist. But he also, he's ready to, he's ready to die with his Lord. The next thing we see with, with Thomas is in, in chapter 14. And Jesus is talking to his, his apostles and says, Hey, I'm going to go prepare, prepare a place for you. I'm going to go and then we'll come back. I'm bringing it to myself. It's kind of a strange conversation. Jesus is talking about the resurrection and coming back again, but they don't know that. And Jesus says, Well, when I go prepare a place for you, you're going to come and you're going to know the way. And Thomas, the realist, enters in and he goes, Wait a minute, Jesus. We don't know the way. We don't have the Google Maps and ways. How do we, how do we get there? We don't know how to get there, Jesus. And Jesus responds with, you do know the way. For Thomas, I am the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. You will get to the Father through me. The peace that surpasses all understanding, Thomas, is going to come through me, and I'm going to show you. And here in this text, we see that fulfilled, that Jesus shows him that way. So, doubting Thomas. I think Thomas is more of a realist. There's a uh, theologian named uh, Gerald Borshaw. He says that Thomas' questions are actually great possibilities for the gospel. But it's also great hesitations. So, in other words, his questioning can be really good for your development and walking with Christ. But it also could be the opposite. could drive you away. Because, see, Thomas is in that place where we kind of are right now. Thomas, Thomas witnessed the, the crucifixion and the, and the horror of it, but he had not actually seen the risen Christ yet like other people had. So Thomas just needed a little bit of something to, to help him out with this. But Jesus knows that. Jesus knows his heart. Now, how do we know that? How do we know Jesus knows his heart? Well, one, he's God. I'm thinking if God knows everything, then He knows what's in my heart. But the, let's see what the text says. In John chapter 2, talks about, John's talking about Jesus, and he says, On his part, he did not entrust himself to them, but he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. So that's the end of chapter two. We roll right into chapter three, and there's there's the next little story is his encounter with Nicodemus. Nicodemus was this, this Pharisee, this great teacher, so he was like, he was like this, like the teacher of professors. So he's the professor's professor. And he goes to Jesus at night, which is kind of interesting, and he says, Hey, I know you're a rabbi, you're doing these great things. Uh, none of this could happen if if it wasn't God, you're doing all these miracles i got some questions for you. And Jesus immediately jumps in there and says, I know what your question is. He doesn't say this. This is, this is the Rich Lee translation. He says, your question, your, what's in your heart, Nicodemus, is not about theology. Because you are a teacher of teachers. Your question is about who I am. Your real question is, am I the Messiah? And he's saying, I am, and you need to be reborn. Your eyes need to be renewed into who I am. I am the Messiah that you have been talking about your entire life and teaching others. Because I know your heart. And then the next chapter, he meets this woman at the well at Sychar. And they have this conversation, and she is an outcast from her community. She's got a lot of things relationally going on in her life, and Jesus calls it out. They've never met. And she's astounded. And at the end of that conversation, she, she says, You're, you have got to be the Messiah. And she runs off to tell her entire town, and she says to them, come see the Messiah, the man who's told me everything I ever did. He knew her heart, and he knew exactly what she needed in that moment to have a conversion in her life to see that he is the one true God. So if Jesus is able to know these intimate details about these figures I think it's kind of rational to think that a risen God would know what's going on in your heart this morning. Because we are just like finite beings, and he is the one true holy God. He sees your desires, he sees your, all the things that you do, but he also knows the condition of your heart and where you want to go in life. Think about those five things I talked about. He knows where you are relationally, he knows where you are spiritually, he knows where you are emotionally, and he knows what the decisions you want to make in your life. He knows it all. He knows it intimately. And he's just asking you, hey, just come be with me. I want to walk with you. I want to sup with you. And I want you to walk with me and see my heart because I want you to to reflect the glory of God in what you say and you do and who you are. But I think if, uh, I don't know about anybody else in the room, but I may be the only person I've had doubts in my life. Even after coming to Christ and surrendering to Him and becoming baptized, there's times I read scripture and I'm like, ah, that's just hard for me and my humanity and my, and my finite mind to grasp a hold of that truth and how it applies to my life. It's a struggle. Sometimes I have doubts. I know you all don't have these, so I'm just really just help, getting you to help me at this point in time. That's where Thomas is. But when we have doubts, it's, it's, it's fine because we do. We're, we're human because when things are tough, We start to ask, is this really true? And Jesus is saying, yes. But let those doubts that you have drive you to questions. Let those doubts you have drive you back to God, back to Scripture, back to our community. Say, I'm struggling here. What do I do with this? And walk with God through this because that, that deep digging will give you the answers. God promises that he's going to give you the answers. It may not be in your time and it may not be the answer you like, but it's going to give you an answer. And that answer will help you drive to your understanding and your acceptance. And if that process plays out in your life, and it will over time, and you get a bigger understanding of the glory of God, then that doubt wins. That's good doubt. But there's another side of that doubt. Sometimes when we get fixated on ourselves and fixated on our own pain, we have those doubts, which is going to come up, it's natural. If we think about, okay, I just need a quick fix. I need to medicate this, this pain away. I need to push this aside. I need to look to what does the world say? What does everybody else say extra God? Outside of biblical authority. Where do I? What's the self-help book that I need to get me through this, to make me feel better about myself and justify my own actions? That doubt is fleeting. That doubt is just going to reinforce your stubbornness. That doubt is going to drive you to self-justification, and you're going to start to make in your volition poor choices in life, which is going to drive you down in that spin cycle even further. And God is saying, stop in that spin cycle. Come to me. Bring to me all your burdens. Because Jesus says, my burden is light. Let me take that on before you. Let's see how Thomas does that. So Thomas is doubting. He says, unless I thrust my hand in that side, I'm not going to believe. Verse 26, eight days later. So how do they count those days? I mean, next Sunday is seven days from now. Last Sunday was seven days from now. Just, just real quick, the way, the way they count in the in Old and New Testament and in those days, there was no zero. So today is day number one, which means next Sunday is day number eight. So when is this? They're back together again eight days later. So that's why we're preaching this sermon today, because it's timely. This is eight days after Easter. Eight days later, his disciples, Jesus' disciples, in this verse, verse 26, they were inside again. So this is where we get the tradition of, of the Christian church meeting on Sunday. They met the day of resurrection. They met the next Sunday. And now that's just carried on through time. And then this time, Thomas is with them. The Thomas who said, hey, I'm not going to believe this until I shove my hand in there. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. And he said, verse 26, look at the text. He said, hey, good to see you all again. Happy Sunday. No, he says, peace be with you. Peace be with you. The shalom be there. And then he immediately turns to Thomas. The next verse says, And he says, Thomas, so good to see you. I'm glad you're here, Thomas, because I heard what you said. Jesus wasn't there, but he heard it. And he says, hey, come here, Thomas. Take a look at my body. Put your finger into my nails, into the nail holes. Put your hand into my side, Thomas. Thomas, stop believing and believe I am here he touched him physically, the risen Christ. He came there for Thomas because he knew what was in his heart. And he knew what Thomas needed. And that this story is recorded for you and I because sometimes we need something to grasp a hold of. Sometimes in the midst of our despair and our struggle, we need some peace, and we need a risen Savior to stand there with us and say, touch me. Come touch my heart. And what's interesting is Jesus changes the wording. Thomas says, I've got to thrust my hand in there. He's very emphatic. He's, being, he's almost like he's arguing with the disciples early on. And Jesus changes the wording, and he says, just touch gently. Come peacefully. Come in tranquility, Thomas, because I'm here with you. There's no reason to be anxious. I'm here. And I'm here for you. See my heart. So the application is, where is your heart? Where is God working and showing up for you? He's going to be there, and he comes graciously. Notice what he doesn't do with Thomas. He doesn't judge Thomas for not being in church, not for missing church the previous Sunday. He doesn't talk to Thomas about doubting him. He doesn't call him Thomas a doubter. He just he affirms his questions and says, "Thomas, just just come talk to me. Come talk to me." And then Thomas's response. In the next sentence, Thomas says four words, my Lord and my God, my Lord and my God, which leads us to our next point. This faithful doubting is going to lead you to that peace. Thomas comes in and he's scared. He's a little emphatic about, I've got to know this, but then he says, my Lord and my God. James talks about how do, how do we approach this this these questions and these doubts in a in a right way. And Thomas Thomas goes about it pretty well, I think. It's not a, probably not everything in the conversation is recorded there, but he at least responds with a confession. In the beginning of James, chapter one, James says, "Hey, you're going to go through difficult times. You're going to go through some stressful times that they're not. It's not tranquil. It's it's struggling." He said, "But in those times, when you have the doubts, when you have the questions." James is saying, go ask God in faith. What does that look like? How do you do that? Well, there's a right way to do it, and there's a wrong way to do it. Asking in faith, we usually, in our humanness, in our pain, we're going to shake our fist, go, God, why? Why is this happening? That's not really faithful. That's accusatory. James is saying, God wants us to come with the open hand. It says, God, I don't like this. I'm struggling here but what do you want me to do with this? It's the same question. You're seeking the why and you're seeking the what, but it's the attitude of your heart and the condition of your mind. Am I trusting God to give me the answer? What do you want me to do with this, God? Or you're going to close your fist and say, why God, why God? It's that good side of doubt and the bad side of doubt. James says, God is going to answer that question. He's going to give you the wisdom. But again, it may not be on your time. It may not be what you want. But if you ask in faith, you will get the answer. It will come. He says, but if you close your fist, James says, you're going to be like a wave of the sea tossed to and fro in the wind. So if you close your fist, you're going to be tossed to and fro from everything everybody's telling you around you who don't know Christ. They're going to tell you, oh, well, you must, you know, your marriage is falling apart. Well, you must have fallen out of love and it never was meant to be. Your health is declining. Well, you know, it's because you, I don't know, you, you ate sugar or something. God is saying, just come to me and learn from me. Walk with me, and I'm going to show you how great and beautiful I am. Thomas said, Lord and my God. What Thomas is saying, it's not just some words that we can throw out there, because we pray all the time, we use the words Lord and God, but this is a very significant confession from Thomas. Thomas is declaring that Jesus... Standing in front of him, bodily resurrected, is his Lord, his King, his Savior. And he is the one true almighty God who formed the heavens and the earth. That's the language behind that. He's using this, the idea of Yahweh from the Old Testament. Let me show you one. Psalm 35. Psalm 35, the psalmist is, is talking about he's, in, he's struggling. Things are not tranquil. And he says, you have seen, O Lord, be not silent. O Lord, be be not far from me. Awake and arouse yourself from my vindication, from my cause, my God and my Lord." the same language. I think Thomas probably had heard this before. He'd also, as a young Jewish boy, had been trained by his parents because God gives him gives a direction in Deuteronomy. It's the college of Shammai, and he says, "Hey, teach this to your children. Teach this when you lie down, when you get up, when you go out the doors and on your gates. And he says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. I think Thomas here is quoting something along these lines. He's remembering back to his training as a young Jewish boy, and he's going, this is my Lord, my God, standing in front of me. Now I believe. You know, Martha, we talked about a minute ago, her brother died. Lazarus dies. And then the end of the story is Jesus raised him from the dead miraculously to bring glory to the Father. And then he enters a conversation into Martha because she was struggling because, because Jesus didn't come and heal him before he died. So in that conversation, Jesus, again, knows her heart. And at the end of that story, after Jesus had emotionally and spiritually touched her heart, Martha says something very similar. And she says, you are the Christ, the Son of God, the one who is coming into the world. And now Thomas is saying the same thing. Thomas gets it now. He now sees standing in front of him the risen Lord, the fulfillment of the gospel, even behind a locked closed door because they were afraid they're still coming after him to stone him. He's like, my Lord, my God. This is the Thomas who said, let's roll at some point in time prior. He now sees him and says, let's do this. Very similar to Peter. Peter is there. If you remember, just a few days earlier, Peter had denied Christ three times. And after this story, we see Peter is is redeemed, as Jesus says, Do you love me, follow my sheep. In that story. But Peter, earlier, Jesus is, Jesus is saying, hey, Peter, y'all have gone out and you're doing some ministry with me. Who do people say I am? And Peter says, ah, some people think you're Elijah, John the Baptist, all this kind of stuff. And Christ stops him and looks at him and says, Peter, who do you say I am? Who am I to you, Peter? That's great you're doing all these things, but do you really know who I am? And Peter says the same thing that Thomas does. says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, Peter says this before the crucifixion and still denies Christ three times. That's the humanness and the brokenness when you're you're struggling, you're not at peace you struggle with, do I believe this stuff? And it's okay to doubt, but turn that doubt into questions. Turn that, guy, that doubt and gaze upon the beauty of God. Are you missing the beauty of God through your pain, or are you seeing it? Let's bring up that picture. All right, so everybody see the two faces of the young girls? Gazing upon the two faces? That represents your pain. We focus on our pain. In fact, focus on the untranquility. I don't know face I in mean a word chaos in our life, if you focus on that, you're going to miss the beautiful vase or the cup from which we celebrate the Lord's Supper. It's the same thing in life. It's two faces or a cup. So are you focused on your pain or are you focused on the cup of Christ? He's saying, Thomas, focus on the cup of Christ. So we struggle in our modern day era because we've gone you know, our ancestors have gone through rationalism and enlightenment, and we've, we've, we've gone through this scientific revolution, and we, we follow the science, but faith is not science. God calls us to exercise our faith despite when everything is telling us it's wrong, because you know what? That truth they're saying it's wrong is not true. Jesus is saying, I am the truth, follow me. But if you need a real tangible example, uh, I missed this in the early service, and so y'all can tell them all about it. You may have heard this illustration before. So years ago, uh, there's, a, there's a guy named um, Josh McDowell, and he, he's done a lot of books on proving the existence of Christ. He was an atheist and then walked through the proofs of Christ and became a Christian through it. And he tells a story, and I get to hear it live. It was really interesting. It's a small room by maybe this size. And he said, you know, we, the Old Testament, depending on how many you count them, there's somewhere between 350, depending on how many how you want to assign them, references to the Messiah or Christ. And he said, if you take just like eight of the best ones, the big ones, like he's going to be born of a virgin from Bethlehem. He's going to escape down to Egypt. He's going to be crucified on a Roman cross. They're going to tear his garments. You take eight of those and you, line, you take those eight and you do some statistics and it's been, it's been proven and validated several times by mathematicians and actually I found yesterday with some um, University challenged their students to do it, and they did it. They validated it. What is the chances that those, just the eight occur in one man in history, because we know historically Jesus lived, was a person. So what is the chances that the Messiah would come in that one person, just off the eight big ones? And the answer is, it's one in this number. One in that number. 17 zeros. What, what is it? 100 quintillion. One in 100 quintillion chance that that was going to happen. And one guy at that time from that location. So that's a big number. It's kind of hard to grasp. So I've gotta, I have an illustration. This is what Josh McDowell did. He took out a silver dollar. I don't have a silver dollar, but I have this. He took out a coin. And he said, this is the equivalent to if you take A hundred quintillion of these and you paint one of them blue and you throw it in the middle of those now what what size is that one one quintillionth of silver dollars would cover the state of texas two feet high the state of texas two feet high and you take this blue one and you throw it in there and you mix it up and then you blindfold dave and you say dave Go find that one, and you get one shot. Can you do it? You have one, one quintillionth chance to do that. That is the statistical chances that the eight major predictions of the Messiah would occur in one person, and we know Jesus was a real person. One, one quintillionth, a hundred quintillionth. So, Thomas didn't need that. Thomas just needed the bodily resurrected Christ in front of him. Now, that was 2,000 years ago. We don't have that, do we? But what we do have is math. We have the recorded consistent word of God that teaches us that, and we have community to study that together to show us that Jesus Christ is who he says he is and did what he says he did. And he will continue to do what he says he will do. So let's look and see what that is. Go to verse 29. His response to Thomas. Thomas says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus says to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Look at the next verse. Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. That's us. Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed based on the testimony of the one true God. That blessing there is the same word he uses for a beatitude. So it's blessed are those who mourn for they will inherit the kingdom of heaven. The beatitude is a blessing upon something that seems completely countercultural and backwards. And God says, if you believe in me, even though you haven't seen me, you take that step of faith, then you will be blessed blessed with eternal life with him. And Jesus says, if you don't believe, the thief, the devil, is crouching in, in behind the corners and prowling around all at the same time, because he's good, to get you. Because he's there to steal, kill, and destroy everything around you. He is there to bring that chaos in your life and all those five areas I talked about. And then Jesus backed it up and said, but I have come that you may have life. You may have it more abundantly. And that word abundant has often been mistranslated into material wealth. That's not what he means. Jesus says, I have come that you may have shalom in your life and you can walk with me and know the end of the game. If we know the end of the game, then all the bad calls in the middle don't really matter. Because we know that he's going to come back and he's going to bring us home. He says, I've gone to prepare a place for you. But I'm just asking you to believe in me. I'm asking you to... Put your finger on my wounds for you, because I did it for you. First Peter says it this way, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls." So sitting here this morning, can you trust the living God who gracefully went in with Thomas to gracefully enter into that place with you and bring you the peace that surpasses all understanding? If you're struggling with that, that's okay. If you're working through those doubts, that's okay, but let those doubts drive you to answers. Don't let it drive you to stubbornness. Last week, John, and talking about our Easter message, talked about that big stone that was rolled away from the tomb. And sometimes we like to roll that stone back to hide Jesus in our life. So what are the stones that you're putting between you and Jesus? What are the what are some of those stones that you need to pray and let and let God's angels drag those out of your life? What is that for you relationally and spiritually and emotionally and physically and volitionally? What are those areas that you need to take some responsibility for? What are those some areas you need to let go because you don't have that control? I don't know what that is for you. I know what that is for me. And I've got them. I'm dragging them around like a stone. And I want to lay those at the feet of the cross so that I have that peace. But that's not the end of the story. Look at verse 30 with me. John chapter 20, verse 30. John the the writer says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, these signs, including the one of Thomas, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Do you hear the repetition of the Lord my God and life in His name here? John the Gospel writer is concluding here, and then he has an epilogue story, but he's actually saying, go back and read the beginning of my book, and it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us in Christ. And here's all the stories to show and prove you that. And Thomas is just like you and I. We needed something tangible to grasp a hold of. Now I think that Thomas's reaction, that just demands a verdict. As Thomas is the realist, so are we. So can you graze upon that and say, you are my Lord and my God? Because he promises that peace. That peace flows When we take off our self-centeredness, off our priorities list, and, and focus on God's desires for our life, that peace is over going to overflow you when you stop trying to control everyone around you, and everything, and give that control over to God. Go with Him in those open hands and say, "What do you want me to do with this, God?" And that peace that surpasses all understanding will overflow and guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. When we approach Him and say, "I'm just a sinner." You're God and I'm not. Come to him with those unconfessed sins and seek his forgiveness. At the same time, forgive others for the same. Let's pray.